You're listening to The Togetherings, hosted by the Alaska Humanities Forum. The Togetherings are recorded conversations with Alaskans from all walks of life, sharing their perspectives on big questions that touch us all. Each series shares a common theme that is explored across episodes. Hello and welcome to The Togetherings. I'm Teresa Lyons of YWCA Alaska, and I'm joined by Amanda Dale of the Alaska Humanities Forum. Hi there. Glad you're here. And Indra Arriaga of KONR. Hi, Indra. Hello. The theme is racism in Alaska. What is our capacity to change? And today's episode is racism, intergenerational perspectives. Is a collaboration between the Humanities Forum and YWCA Alaska, which is how Teresa and I came to be here as co-hosts. YWC Alaska is committed to helping people in Alaska, and we are looking to serve our communities in ways with programming and services that will inspire and educate and transform lives. The mission of YWCA Alaska is to eliminate racism, empower women and girls, promote peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all. And we're very excited about this opportunity on Togetherings to have a conversation with Alaskans about racism in Alaska and how we might think about dismantling systemic racism. And before we dig into today's conversation, we want to thank GCI for their support of this Togetherings series. GCI believes in connecting with and making a lasting impact in communities across Alaska. Together, we make Alaska stronger. Thank you, Amanda. I am honored to um, introduce our guest. We have with us um, Solomon Shepard, who is a senior at West High School. And we have Vera Allen-Jones. Um, and Vera is committed to education, equity, and opportunity for diverse populations. She's a retired UAA faculty and former administrator, including a former director at the UAA Multicultural Center. She's a child of the South with ties to the North and anchors in the Pacific Northwest. Her personal motto is, each one, reach one. Thank you, Vera and Solomon, for being here. Vera and Solomon, thanks again for being with us today. And I'd love to start off by asking you both, um, what is your connection with today's topic? It's racism, intergenerational perspectives. And, and what's your connection to this? Could we start with you, Vera? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on today. Um, I guess I would say, especially because we're looking at it from an intergenerational perspective, I recognized early on that how we respond to events and activities in our lives um, is based a lot on the lens which, with which we view it. Um, I am a child of the South originally. I, it's quite a journey. Born in New York, um, Greyhound bus ride down to Georgia at six weeks of age and raised in the South, in the rural South. Uh, and I've spent my young adult life in the South, moving to Alaska in 1991. But prior to that, you know, living in the South and live, and being raised by my grandmother, who was a for real grandmother's age, traditional grandmother's age back in the day. And so having the opportunity to witness various isms, including racism, or experience it, but having always access to someone who could frame it for me, from their perspective. My grandmother was born in 1902. Um, and so she has seen a lot and she shared a lot and the neighborhood was full of women, um, older black women who too had seen a lot. So just living in the rural South, um, having a, a, what I perceive as a great childhood and then growing up secure in the knowledge of who I am, who I was and who I am as a black female. And so that's how I, that's, that's my framing, that's my anchor, and those are the lens with which I've viewed the topic we're discussing today. Solomon, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that was a very well put answer. Um, uh, I guess, so being a kid in Alaska, obviously we're one of the most diverse states in the entire nation. So um, I, I've always had the privilege of knowing a lot of different kids of different races and different backgrounds than me. Um, but regardless of that, I've noticed that 
the older I get, it seems like people come back to what's familiar to them. Um, and so I don't know, like, for example, I'm on the cross country running team at school and believe it or not, most of the kids on the team are, um, also white, also from well-off families with parents who make sure they get all the paperwork in and, you know, take them to the doctor if they're feeling any sort of injury that just naturally became more of my friend group because those were the people I was hanging out with more. Um, and that really bothers me to think about um, and how easily I just like fell into that, I guess. And so I guess my connection is more just the struggle to understand why, you know, we've come so far, but yet we still have so far to go. Um, and what I can do, I guess, on a smaller level to help with that. You know, we asked our guests yesterday um, to kind of position themselves in this summer and to share a little bit about how they're feeling in the midst of everything that's been happening uh, since the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And I would love to pose this question to the two of you as well. You know, how, how are you feeling as you see these happenings in Alaska and beyond um, in response to that event? And, and just how are you feeling this summer overall? Maybe Solomon, could we start with you? Sure. As far as like a, I guess like a larger activism role, I, I mean, I've gone to some protests. I've, you know, I've seen that kind of thing. And the biggest way that it's affected my life, as silly as it's going to sound, is everybody on Instagram. There's Instagram stories, you know, where you can like post a little like thing that'll last for 24 hours and then disappear. And everybody, as soon as the whole George Floyd incident happened, everybody started posting all of these things from other accounts about how to identify racism, how to deal with racism, um, you know, the shortcomings of the police, the shortcomings of the criminal justice system. So many things um, that were just being spread around like wildfire. And I... At first, I was a little annoyed by it. I was like, well, what's the point of even looking at these? There's so many, right? And most of them are like preaching the same exact thing. But then I kind of started to realize like, isn't that the entire point? The more people that hear about this and know about this, especially like us kids, right? If we can be hearing all of this through a platform we're familiar with, that's going to be really beneficial for us. That's been pretty eye-opening to me to see how many kids my age actually care. Hmm. Thanks, Solomon. Vera, what came to mind for you? I love hearing Solomon speak. Um, so, you know, that's a really good question. How do I feel? And I really had to assess that for myself as things bubbled and the pot boiled over the summer. And initially, I thought I felt numb um, because I didn't feel anything with hearing the news. There was not a visceral reaction. Um, I didn't have a, an emotional outcry rise up in me. And, and it caused me pause. I actually sat and asked, am I really numb to this? I mean, have I experienced it so much that I'm numb? And I came to realize I'm not numb. It's more of a sense of knowing because it's not new. Um, I'm not saying it's not valid. Uh, I'm not, so I make no claim to how or, or direction how other people reacted or feel about it, but I had to acknowledge and affirm and validate myself and recognizing that this is a knowing place. I know what this feels like. I know this, this, this scenario, which is unfortunate. It's unfortunate that seeing it was not a surprise to me. And it's unfortunate that I can't remember a time of not seeing it, not, not, not seeing these type of actions take place. The fact that we're able to capture it um, and put, place it on social media, to place it in the news is, is um, a sign of the times, which is a wonderful thing. But there has always been some medium that allowed us who were ready to see. Um, there was always some medium available to us to know that this 
these type of actions were taking place. And so this summer, um, it was just a matter of I had to sit with myself and recognize I know this and then make some determinations about how the world around me was going to influence how I responded to it. Sarah, I'm struck by your phrasing, you know, us who were ready to see. Is that something that you see the needle moving on at this point? You know, does that feel like something that's shifting or not necessarily? I think the needle is constantly shifting. The, and that's part of the challenge because it's constantly shifting. You know, it's much like a pendulum. At some point and in some eras, you know, it would seem on the surface as though things are getting better. And and they are, with air quotes, but are they really? You know, if it's like surf, is it surface dressing, um, or is there real movement? And and I'm not a pessimist. <laughs> I'm actually quite the opposite. I'm I'm quite an optimistic person. I believe people have the capacity to grow and change. Um, change is not easy, and change has not come swiftly. And this has been a long, long, long road. And it just causes me to ponder uh, what will it take to to have it actually happen, to to actually have people ready to not just have the hard conversations. We call it difficult dialogues and all kinds of things, but talking and you have to talk, you have to talk, but you have to listen. And then you have to have a very concrete plan that may or may not work that you're ready to execute in order to see a change. You know, these difficult dialogues you talk about made me wonder, are you, are you talking about, you know, something that's a, a gathering and, and people are invited to share and it's real intentional? Or are you talking about everyday conversations with people? I, I think both. Um, because I think you have an audience that will respond to group settings. And, you know, the need to stand and and engage in a meaningful um, manner and recognizing that what's meaningful to one person may not be as meaningful to another. But I think there's real value in conversing one on one, um, talking to people that you happen to meet on the street. And it doesn't have it won't necessarily start at that deep level of dealing with systemic or dealing with systems uh, of oppression or anything like that, it can. It literally starts oftentimes with a hello, how are you? Finding common ground because there are more similarities than differences. And too often, if you focus your attention only on the thing that makes us different, then you're already starting at the bottom of the mountain and without a rope or climbing gear versus mm-hmm. being able to really think, okay, this is common ground we can all agree on because there is common ground. Um, and after you can have something to anchor to have a foothold in, then you can start unpacking some of the other um, pieces that may cause us angst. And we all have angst about something. There's a lot of isms to deal with in the world. <laughs> Absolutely. There is there a particular conversation um, that maybe you could share with us about? That, that you maybe have been a part of or witnessed that sticks out to you, you know, when we're talking about the importance of these dialogues. And uh, Solomon, I'm going to come to you next with the same question. Okay, that's, that's a good one. So, okay, yes. So let me, um, let me be transparent with my own ism. When I was in graduate school, low many years ago, <laughs> um, I, I was in a pro. I was in the counseling program. That this is at a school down in Georgia, a university down in Georgia, and it was a group counseling class. And one of the things we had to do, or, or you had to pass this class to be able to go on to your other, um, to continue in your program to the next level. And this class was about us really dealing with things, isms, if you will. But they didn't call it that because that wasn't a thing at that point. But dealing with your own stuff. And we were talking um, about, you know, relationships and so forth. And I realized, and I shared, because this came to mind for me, that I really had a difficult time with black men dating white women. That that caused, I I didn't like that. I 
I, and it's not like I dislike white women um, as a group or even as individuals, but as a concept, I really had a difficult time with, it just made me feel like, mm, why would you do that? And it was through that class and through conversations, and, and let me just frame it for you, I was the only black person in the program at the time. So my cohort, my graduate cohort, my classmates were all Caucasian individuals, male and female. So I was the only um, African-American person in the program at that time. And I was the only one that was not already, um, did not already have a teacher certification or working in the school district of anywhere. And I was the youngest person in the cohort. So I had all of that working with me. Um, and it was through that, and people initially got very quiet when I shared that conversation. Um, when I said, this, this is something I have a problem with. And they, it was silence. I mean, you could hear a feather hit the floor. And I continued to, so the, the facilitator, the, the faculty member, very wisely facilitated that conversation and helped me unpack what that was for me. And what I realized through that conversation is that my concern, my dislike, and it was a real dislike, a real kind of like, mm, I don't know why you want to do that, was because I had witnessed in my childhood um, my relatives, and I really hadn't thought about this until we unpacked this, but again, growing up in the rural silos, I had witnessed my relatives, they kind of, you, you get three carloads of people, and they're going on a trip. Okay, but they would always meet at my grandmother's house because we were like on the edge of town. And so, you know, no big deal. They're going on a trip. And when they would come back, they would have my one of my cousins from Milwaukee with them and his family. He was married to a white woman in um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And they had at that point one little girl. Um, and so no big. And she came in the house and, you know, when the kids came in the house, it was no big deal. But what I realized is what I was hearing, conversations that I was hearing going on that literally were in my subconscious until this class was that mm. those three cars went to escort him through certain parts of Tennessee and Georgia where a black man could not be in a car with a white woman and be safe. Mm. That was in my psyche and it was buried there. Mm. And, and I wasn't even aware that that happened. So I'm like, people going, are you kidding me? Why would you do that? And in the town where I was, I, I was aware of other things happening that were not positive actions happening to black men who were attempting to have a be in relationship with white females. So those things were deeply embedded. I didn't see it. I never saw anything happen to anyone. But I was exposed to the conversations and that was anchored in my psyche. And that then drove my feelings toward why would a white man, a black man, think a white woman, why would you do that to yourself? And so I just wanted to share that. That was one of those conversations. Ah, uh, that's a really powerful example. Very Thank you for sharing that. Solomon, are, are there a lot of conversations that you see happening um, with your peers or with friends? Um, is there one that maybe sticks out to you that you've been a part of or that you've heard about? So actually, as Vera was recounting that story, I thought of one major example um, that I've actually dealt with a lot, especially recently. Um, and the whole thing centers around pickup basketball. So... Basically, I've always, you know, I've liked basketball always. Um, I haven't been very good for most of my life. Wouldn't even say I'm good now. But um, the part that would always, like, terrify me the most, like, I could play with my friends and be just fine, right? But as soon as I went to the gym and I saw, the, really, I mean, to put put it quite frankly, people who weren't like me, um who are a lot more confident in their abilities, who were just a lot more confident in general, who wore the, you know, fancy basketball shoes, who just looked different. Like that's when I sh really struggled because, um, it was just, it was a different environment. I felt like I had to prove myself. And so I put so much pressure on myself to do that. Um, 
And obviously, you know, the only way to fix that is just to put yourself in that environment more. So, you know, I didn't like for a while I struggled with it and it was, you know, hard to convince me to play a game with people I didn't know. Um, but then uh, I actually when we lived in California for three years um, between fifth and seventh grade for me and we met our babysitter who later became sort of a big brother to us named Davion and Davion is a young black man who loves uh, kids. He just, that's what he does now. He works at a Montessori preschool and he just works with kids all day. So Davion sort of helped me start to get that confidence and um, sort of made me realize like, what's the big deal? Worst case scenario, they don't think I'm that good. But if I try my hardest, like people are going to respect that regardless. Um, and so, you know, I started to get a lot better with that. And um, like I said, I really have Davion to thank for most of that um, transition. But then you flash forward to uh, the past couple years. Um, I've started going and playing pickup basketball at gyms or – this summer, we uh, there's a park called Fish Creek that I go to and play at a lot. Um, and interestingly enough, now I'm going with my friends, and it's sort of become me that is um, helping them get that confidence that they need to play with people they don't know. Um, like, for example, at Fish Creek, we'll go, and there's usually – um, a massive group of these uh, Filipino kids around our age who will always go and play. And they're pretty good. I'm not going to lie. Like, they're probably better than us. But um, I noticed a few of my friends were really struggling with that confidence. Like, they wouldn't want to shoot or, you know, they would be questioning, second-guessing everything they did on the court. And I really just had to, like, drill it into their brains. They kept saying, hey, guys, just shoot if you're open. Just Make the play you think is right. Like, no one's no one's gonna laugh at you if you mess up. It's not a big, not a big deal, and they're gonna respect you if you're good. So just show them what you can do, and it actually has helped a lot. And now we've actually ended up becoming really good friends with those Filipino kids, and we all know each other's names, and we play on each other's teams now, which wasn't happening at the start. Um, and I know it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of a small thing at the end of the day, but um, it's been really awesome for me to be able to see those two groups, like cross-country runners and skiers, and then Filipino kids who play basketball, and that's their passion, to like sort of merge together under, like on that common ground. Um, and normally I don't get, you know, super excited about this sort of thing, but it just feels really cool to know that I sort of orchestrated that in a way, I guess. That's an incredible story, Solomon. Thank you so much for sharing it. And it's no small thing. As you were sharing your story, I just kept thinking about the level of transformation that happens when we start to have good conversations and stand up in our humanity. It's fantastic. Something we had heard both of you bring up that we'd love to dive into a little more. Um, Vera, when you were talking about growing up, you said you were secure in the knowledge of, of who you were. I hope that's the right wording. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Solomon, you seem to really um, have a certain amount of this self-knowledge and confidence, and certainly much more than, than I had at 17, I'm happy to admit. And the question we're, we're wondering about here in the studio is, how is that important when we think about combating racism? How important is it that folks really start to know themselves in the way that you two, I think, are modeling, in a sense, for listeners? Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I honestly think it's it's everything. Like it's it's a an extremely important thing because in order to make any kind of change, you really have to lead by example, right? So if I can't you know, going back to what I said earlier, if I can't go out on the court and, you know, ball out and have a good time, then my friends aren't going to see me, aren't going to see that and um, think, why can't I do that? So I think 
having that self-assurance and confidence in yourself allow is what like allows you to bridge the gap and make the sort of changes that you want to see. Another story that uh, my mom always tells is how we had these little like, you know, cute onesie snowsuits when we were younger, me and my brother Moshi. And <laughs> mine was <laughs> mine was purple. And Moshi's was, I don't know, like blue or green or, you know, something more manly, masculine. <laughs> we're picturing it, Sullivan. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, keep in mind, we were like maybe two and four at this time. And Moshi asked me, so why do you wear that purple snowsuit? Don't you think it's a little girly? And my mom said that my answer was, people can wear any color they want. <laughs> and um, so, you know, again, like, seems like a small thing in the moment, like you guys uh, so eloquently put it. But at the end of the day, like, it's those little things and that little bit of leading by example that's going to show other people the way to get making things better. So that was great. Um, <laughs> so self-esteem, uh, self-esteem is, is so important. Um, and confidence is important, but not arrogant because I mm. think sometimes people think that they have high self-esteem or great confidence. And what they're really exhibiting is arrogance. Um, again, I was raised with women who just did not tolerate foolishness <laughs> at all. Um, but you, you know, they would encourage and, and support and promote, but not in the fluffy, you know, you, you're so wonderful. Everybody gets a trophy kind of way. Um, it was one of those things where, let me give you an example. I can remember asking my grandmother, mama, do you love me? And her response was, did you eat today? <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, what does that have to do with the question? She said, that's the wrong question to ask. And and she left it like that, and which is what she did a lot. She forced me to think and come back with a different question if I wanted a different response. Um, I had self Teenage, you know, young teenage black girl, I mean, teenage female period, self-esteem gets waffled a little bit. I never questioned who I was or whose I was. I might have felt some type of way around... Um, you know, if I was in the popular clique and, or, or some of those type of things, was I smart enough? And I call those normal angst, but never who I was. Because, again, being anchored and knowing, look, this is your reality. You, you are a black female. And that was said. That was shared. You, you are a black female. You're going to be a black woman. Um, you know who you are. You know who you are. And it was tied to the family name. You know who you are based on how you live your life will detect, um, will directly affect what happens next. Um, you know who you are and that you need to treat everybody the way you want to be treated. That was an anchor. You have to treat everybody the way you want to be treated. Um, we didn't talk about racism as an overt thing like um, you know, you got to be careful, you black, you can't just go down there. It wasn't a fear thing. It was really like this. And here's the story. I can, here, I can make it a summary. My grandmother and the women said to me, you don't get mad at a rattlesnake for being a rattlesnake. Because we have snakes in Georgia. She said, you, when you see a snake, you have choices. You either kill it, you avoid it by walking the other way, but you don't, she said, you, you know, you engage with it and get bitten. She said, those are the choices. You decide. But a snake is a snake. And so I really put that, you know, in my tool belt and decided how I would handle things. So racism, again, I w we saw it overtly. You know, I'm a child that remember when schools were segregated. That was a part of my reality. I remember when I went to high school, um, when they finally integrated in my area, and though all the white kids and teachers left and built a private school. So the high schools then became predominantly black and the white teachers that were there, some of them weren't picked up by the private school. And so I learned to recognize 
after high school. I didn't get it then. That racism isn't always about somebody doing something to you. It's about them not doing something to you, like not teaching you. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we had teachers who were there because they were not picked up, I realize now, or could not move or whatever, and they just didn't teach. They We had class, but we played games in class. And, you know, as a teenager, it was like, oh, okay, fun, good times. But I went away, I graduated from high school never having had written um, an essay, ever, like never. <laughs> she was an English teacher. So I went to college without knowing how to write an essay, you know. And so I learned that how you treat people, um, how you feel about yourself, and that teacher, again, how she felt about herself in that moment directly impacted or influenced her actions. How I felt about myself decided, you know, because I, I had strong self-esteem. So, I mean, I was lifted up both in the family and in the church and in the community. So I really believed my own press <laughs> that I was good enough and great enough and doggone it, I could do anything I want to put my mind to. That was real. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you both for sharing that story. Um, I'm interested in maybe exploring, because it sounds like there's a lot of uh, introspection and, you know, I think about racism and um, Vera, you had mentioned earlier in the conversation, um, you know, how it can make us somewhat uncomfortable. And that's okay, we need to be. But uh, do you have any advice, either of you, about how a person might uh, be encouraged to just remain in that uncomfortable space and go on that journey of looking inward? Because both of you have talked about being able to Uh, assess your own internal feelings and explore your own history and thoughts and do that deep work of recognizing who you are. So do you have any comments for our listeners about this space of being uncomfortable and how we might be encouraged to remain in it and and do that good work? Um, I think one key piece, and, and I've tried to practice this in my life, is not to clump people in groups not to say all when when you use absolute determiners everybody always every you know everybody is like this all of them are like this Mm. it happens all the time Um, you create a box that you put yourself in where you can't escape so if you deal with individuals as individuals, and I'm not saying there aren't systems in place, so please, if the listeners out there thinking I'm naive, I'm not naive to that. But systems are created by individuals. And so if I can remember, and I, I, I really work on this, remember, I need to deal with the individual and recognize that, and I, I read this somewhere, people aren't always the problem. The problem is the problem. So how can I then say, okay, Jane, John, you did X, Y, Z. And this is how I feel about that. Recognizing that they may not change their feelings about why they did X, Y, Z. And that I have to, I, I can't expect someone to honor my feelings if I'm not able to honor theirs, even if I totally disagree with it. And think it's the most asinine thing I've ever heard. And that's a challenge. Because I've said this in the past, and I'm going to say this now, and people are going to feel some kind of way about it. But I can respect an overt racist. Because they own their feelings. They own their beliefs. And I, in my personal experience, and I've dealt with some people who are just for real, for real, Overt racist will tell you that, carry the flag, put it down. And I I respect that more than someone who is subversive (laughs) and, and, you know, throws rocks and hides their hand, Mm -hmm. Um, makes you think they're on board with it, but they're not. And so really just checking, always checking yourself, dealing with the individuals, Doing it in a way that is comfortable for you because all of us are not protesters. There, all, every means of expression is valid, but recognize different people express themselves differently, both for or against, whatever the topic may be. 
and just really own what you can do in a space that is comfortable for you to address it one-on-one. And if you have the power, authority, and access to address it systemically, then and you feel confident and comfortable enough in doing mm-hmm. so, then do that. But there are all kinds of ways to approach it. And it ha- but it has to be authentic to who you are as an individual. And we have to be respectful and recognize people believe what they believe just like we believe what we believe. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Vera. Solomon, did you have any comments or thoughts about how one might be encouraged to occupy that place of being uncomfortable as we learn how to better stand against racism? Uh, Yes, actually. um, I thought that Vera made a fantastic point um, in saying that you have to treat people as individuals. Um, That's that is really like one of the most important things you can do and the most vital things you can do in order to help you remain in that uncomfortable place. Because, you know, if you see people walking around the halls of your school or you see people at work or you see people on the street, um, you know, it's it's sort of human nature almost to just assume and, you know, put together these people, like whether it's because of their appearance or, you know, because of what you've heard about them or whatever it may be. And that's easier because, um, you know, your brain loves to recognize patterns. Mm -hmm. And so if it establishes this pattern for a certain group of people, then it will be much happier and more comfortable. But that's wrong, obviously. And it's not going to get you anywhere um, in terms of progress. So really, you have to treat people as individuals. And then the next step is to just talk to people, Mm -hmm. honestly. What I've noticed, especially as I started to get a little older and, um, you know, like I said, get a little more confident in myself, um, I've started to just talk to people like I'll, you know, whether it be on the basketball court, whether it be at the grocery store, random people, people I see in the halls, um, homeless people like I see people around all the time why not just have a conversation with them? And a lot of times I've found actually that it's them approaching me. Um, as long as you, you know, look at them with kind eyes and nod, whoever it may be, and let someone else know that you're open to the idea of having a conversation. Those nonverbal cues are actually going to make them want to talk to you. Um, And so, and those conversations are really valuable because even if you just say, uh, you know, like, hey, how's your day going? Like the other day, uh, I was driving and I had my window down because, you know, it was nice and sunny. Um, And a car pulls up next to me and this guy is clipping his fingernails out the window uh, on the passenger side. And he looks at me and gives me a nod and I look at him and give him a nod. And he says, hey, man, how's your Sunday been? And I just said, oh, (laughs) I mean, it's been (laughs) I said, I said, man, it's been great. It's good weather. You know, it's a nice day out. And he was like, that's really cool, man. Uh, You know, like, hope you have a nice day. And, you know, it was like a super simple thing. But he wasn't a person that I would normally ever associate with in my life based on, like, you know, the activities (laughs) I'm in and the things I'm into. But just that is like powerful because then the next time I see that guy or, you know, just people who I assume are like him, it's going to be easier to have a conversation with that person. Um, And so, yeah, obviously. So like I said, in summary, you got to treat people as individuals because that's what they are. And that's just as simple as that. And it'll knock your brain out of that pattern recognition that it loves so much. And then you got to talk to those individuals and it doesn't matter what the conversation is, but just talking is going to make things better. It's really interesting for, for Teresa and I to be hearing, um, 
you know, from two folks from different generations today. And, you know, as our topic for this conversation is intergenerational perspectives, we're wondering if these are conversations that are happening, um, Vera and Solomon, within your own families or your own circles between people in different generations. Are there conversations about race and racism happening? And if so, what do they look like? Um, so definitely, at least um, in my family, we've had a lot of conversations um, about racism and race and all sorts of things like that. Um, I mean, it's pretty, I guess you could say it's normalized. Like, I don't even really bat an eye if that topic comes up. Um, my Both my parents are really young. <laughs> They're just turning 40. Um, and they grew up in Alaska as well. Um, and so they're pretty accustomed to the diversity of Alaska. And they also went to the same high school as me. Um, and they were actually, because my dad played football and, you know, my mom was just a really friendly person. Like they met a lot of different people that they like, that their high school experience has been a lot more different than mine in terms of um, the diversity and friends that they made. Um, and so, you know, I think that really carries over to them teaching us because we always hear things about race uh, in my family. And, you know, my mom will point out something she noticed in the news or, you know, something she noticed on the street and my dad will do the same. Um, and, of course, there's also, uh, we have three adopted siblings in my family, um, two of which are um, uh, Mexican and one of which is African-American. So um, I think that also obviously is a big factor, like, you know, where those sorts of conversations just come up a lot because these are people we live with, you know, like it affects us more than it might affect um a family that doesn't have that sort of presence. Um, and I, I really do credit obviously my parents a lot as well. Um, because having those conversations on a regular basis really helps open your eyes, um, to, you know, racism and not, I mean, obviously like everybody knows racism exists. Everybody like understands racism and like what, you know, it implies, but not everyone understands how it actually affects the world and their own lives. Um, but I think that I actually do have a fairly good grasp on that, like how racism affects my life and the people around me, mm -hmm. because I've had the privilege of having parents who will talk to me about that sort of thing very openly. And um, so I'm the mother of a 23-year-old son, black male, and 19-year-old twins, a son and a daughter, who are also black, African-American. And we definitely had these conversations. We've had them <laughs> just as a matter of conversation. Like Solomon says, it's just some, it's a part of the conversation and dialogue that happens in the home. Um, but we especially had them um, this summer, this spring and summer, with all the um, unrest going on in the country. And one of the things that I absolutely learned is that it's important that we, that I listen, that my husband and I listen to them because our perspective about what's going on is very different than their perspective. Uh, and, and it's just it required me to stop talking, to actually listen with my whole being so that I could hear their concern or lack of concern. I could, and that I could discern whether or not what they were saying was um, causing them real pain. Uh, and so I listened. I, I learned to listen more than I talk. And, I, and that's what, what our generation, that's what we have to do. The young people have a different perspective. This world is not the world we grew up in. Um, and so to all of the mothers out there over the age of 50 and beyond, but I'll say 50 and I'm on the late end of that, 
we really have to listen to the young people. They know how to do things. They know how to galvanize and 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 influence and and just approach this whole conversation in a, a very different way that may make us uncomfortable. Some of it makes me uncomfortable, um, and I own it, but I don't shut it down. And so, in order for me to listen in a way that makes my young people in my home feel respected. I have to listen with my lips closed and listen to understand, not listen waiting to respond. And and that's that's been very valuable here. Sarah, we're putting our hands up in the studio here <laughs> as you were talking. Um, we are getting toward the end of the hour. It's almost time for closing thoughts um, from our guests, but I did want to ask a quick follow-up, Vera. You mentioned that your kids and you have different perspectives on what's happening this summer. Is yes. that something you could share just a bit more about with us? Um, they are, yes, I can. They, My children don't, on the surface, as far as what it looks like to me, it doesn't seem like they're reacting to it. They're, they're not, well, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. They're not the ones that are marching. My, my children aren't marchers. And that, you know, I don't feel any kind of way about that. Like I say, we need those people out there doing what they do. Um, but they are having, as I've listened, I had to really listen because, you know, they go into secret squirrel mode. Um, <laughs> they're, having conver- they're having conversations with their friends on Snapchat and on Instagram and on Twitter. And that's how their activism is showing up. So they're not doing the, the words and the talking heads. Some, and they have friends. Some of them, some of their friends are those people that are out there doing that. Um, my oldest is very quiet. He's very introspective, but he is a deep well. And so when he has something to say, he says that and it's profound, but I'm not his audience. So it's, it's, that's, that's how it's showing up. And they seem very comfortable and doing what they're doing. And I am comfortable in saying that's okay. Now, the one thing I absolutely step outside and cross out all kind of boundaries about, and I don't have to fight hard because it's ingrained in them, is they have to vote, period. No discussion. I'm going to be the mama today. You have to vote. Um, that's a non-negotiable for me. But they have been going to the voting polls with me since they were babies, literally. So it's not a hard conversation, and now I am challenging them to challenge their friends to vote. Because I told them, I said, I think it's a wuss move for you not to vote. Sure, you got a choice, but on this, you need to remember that it wasn't so long ago, particularly uh, for my daughter. I said, you know, as a woman, it wasn't so long ago you didn't have a right to vote. And as black people, it wasn't so long ago that we didn't have a right to vote. Um, And so recognize that if you're saying it's my choice, I choose not to vote, um, you are saying I choose to accept the world however it's presented to me. And I don't want to hear not one complaint. (laughs) So that's how we communicate intergenerationally. (laughs) This has been a fantastic hour of discussion. I feel like I'm just getting smarter with every comment that you both have shared. We are uh, nearing the time of wrapping up our program, but we just wanted to get just that one final thought from each of you. I think overall, kind of like Vera was saying, us younger people, like the younger demographic, don't seem to be on the surface as passionate about, you know, like, um, I, uh, make, making progress towards a world without racism or, uh, voting or, you know, all these different things, um, that generations above us seem to really, really, really care about. Mm -hmm. Um, but like she said, just because it doesn't seem like that on the surface, doesn't seem like we're passionate, doesn't mean that we aren't. I think it's just manifested in a much different way for this generation than it has been for generations past. Um, because we really are, uh, getting to a point where, um, like Vera said, like there was, she can remember a time when schools were segregated. Whereas for us, like, 
anyone my age, like the idea of that is preposterous. Um, so I think that we seem less passionate because we sort of take for granted the social climate of the times right now. Um, but also maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe the normalization of all of these topics and all of this activism and things like that is exactly what we need to um, really make things right. So I guess, you know, if there's anyone listening for <laughs> who's, you know, high school kid or college kid, just thinking they're going through the motions, um, I want you to know that anything you do um, is valuable. So, yeah. Saul, we're so happy you've been on this program. Thank you for joining us today. Farrah, of course. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Farrah, a quick closing thought from you. Absolutely. Um, listen with your whole being. Your lips closed and your ears and heart open. Act through voting. Act through funding. Um, our young people in their efforts to affect change in our community, act by re you being the first person to reach across the street or up the street or across the aisle, Put you take that on as the act, and then listen again. Continue to always listen. Um, seek to understand before you seek to be understood. Sarah Allen Jones, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us a lot thank to think you. about. Thank you also to our listeners, to the Humanities Forum, to Teresa Lyons of the YWCA Alaska, and of course to our sponsor for this series, GCI. Thank you for their support for this Togethering series. GCI believes in connecting with and making a lasting impact in communities across Alaska. Together, we make Alaska stronger.